come again. Steve almost had us there, right? He almost had us there. He's coming again for his church. And that's, that's the ever-present reality in which we live in. Isn't that right? That our Saviour has not abandoned us. Our Saviour is coming again to receive us unto himself. And where he is, we will be. We will be with him forevermore. As the writer in Thessalonians said, you know, we're going to comfort one another with this hope. That, 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 that our saviour is coming again for us. And so now for me, that's what Christmas is about. It, it really is. You know, yes, we have, the, we have all of this that we see happening right now as we remember the birth of the child. And, and I think I said in a service on Wednesday morning, the greatest crime that we can do is to leave the child lying in the manger. Isn't that right? To leave the baby in the manger. Isn't it amazing? You look upon that child, you know, and, and there's all those people that came, the shepherds came, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and they gathered around and they're in awe. Simeon and Anna, they're all there waiting, as it says there, for the consolation of Israel. They're waiting there for this promised Messiah to come. And, uh, and you look and you gaze upon that child, you know, and, and hopefully as we gaze upon that child, we will look at that child and... And just realize that um, those little hands, the, those little feet, they would be pierced for us, you know. Uh, he would be lifted up for us. As he himself said, that he will be lifted up, that all men will be drawn unto him, you know. Um, there was purpose to Christmas. And, and I say it every year, we cannot celebrate Christmas without moving forward to resurrection morning, to the crucifixion and resurrection morning, because that's all the early church preached really, wasn't it? That he is alive, you know, and we're preaching today that he is alive. But this morning, if you will, this um, just turn to me to, Math- to Matthew's gospel with me. Um, uh, these, these two weeks leading up, I, was, I just want to look at Matthew, a bit of Matthew's Christmas story. And next week, my favourite Christmas story, if any of you can guess, um, is... Uh, is John's, and uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, you know. Isn't that glorious? We'll look at that next week. Um, But turn to Matthew chapter 2 with me, will you? Now, is it warm in here? Oh, look, some people are going like this. Maybe we need to put some air on, Dave. I'm worried about you. You're all sitting there. Yeah. Okay. Let's just read this story. We know it's so familiar. We're talking about the story, of course, of the wise men coming. You know, John's gospel begins in eternity past, doesn't it? His Christmas story. Luke's gospel, of course, begins with the shepherds and being drawn. Mark's Christmas story, well, he doesn't have one, does he? He starts with John the Baptist and the ministry of John the Baptist. But, uh, but Matthew takes us directly to this, um, this account of the, of the wise men coming. Let's just read it and start there. Now, it says, When Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. This Herod is Herod the Great. He is a... Well, the best way to describe Herod the Great is he is a short little, not man, he's a short little monster, quite frankly. That's how, he's best, that's how we would best describe him, describe him. So it says that in the days of Herod the King, Herod the King, Herod the Great, um, uh, 
He was not a good man. How can I say it any other way? He was not a good man. And history reads that nobody got in his way. Nobody got in his way. But he was a short guy. He was a little over four feet tall. Tell us, you know. But everything that this little man did was big. Everything he did was big. He built big buildings. That's how the secular world views Herod. He built these, these, these giant buildings. He built big buildings out of big rocks. And that's, that was Herod's... Herod's claim, I guess, to fame, if we want to put it that way. He was a genius in builder, quite frankly. You know, the things that he built, amazing. He built huge fortresses. He, he built um, the Herodian fortress, his personal um, palace fortress where he lived and ultimately was buried. He built, of course, Masada. Any of you that have been to Israel have been to Masada. Herod built Masada, that, that incredible um, fortress there. Um, of course, he built the temple. There in Jerusalem, he built the whole Temple Mount precinct. He built Caesarea. He built uh, the pools near Bethsaida. He built so many things. That's what he did. He spent his life, his time there in Judea, building these things. And this, this little fella, a genius when it comes to building, but he was also horribly cruel. He was horribly cruel and he was intensely paranoid. This little man was, you know. You know, he thought he's... Uh, he thought his sons and his wife, um, he thought his wife's brothers, there's a whole list of people that he thought were conspiring against him or speaking against him. And he had his wife, Miriam, he had his two sons put to death, he had their, Miriam's brothers put to death, he had, he had, he had um, uh, Miriam put to death and then he felt sorry about it and so he built a big memorial to her. You know, this is the sort of guy we're dealing with here. You know? But he had eight other wives as, as well, so he, he got past it, you know. But um, it was said of Herod, and no doubt you've heard this statement, it was, it was said of Herod that it was safer to be his pig than it was to be his, his child. That's, that's this man. And I take the time to highlight this man because there, there, there's, there's a parallel being established here for us, and I'll come to it in the end. So, so read with me again. Oh, by the way, this is the this is the this is the, the tenor of the man. Um, he became so aware that he was hated that he decreed by law that when he would die, he would have those closest to him, his uh, those closest to him, also put to death and buried, because he feared no one would mourn at his death. And so he thought he would have these respected people put to death so that at least when he died, there would be mourning in the land where he had died. That's the sort of guy, again, you know. Um, thankfully enough, history tells us that when he died, those in authority, because they're the guys that were going in the, in the tomb with him, <laughs> realised they didn't have to follow his orders anymore. So, you know, um, that, was, that was Herod. So... Now in those days, these days of this fellow, when Herod was king, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. And they said, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. Certainly there are many misconceptions about who these wise men were. Astrologers, it is generally accepted, is who they were. And most probably from Babylon, from the east, um, 
church tradition uh, gives us their names. Are you interested in their names? Because it's nothing more than tradition. They were Malcor, Caspar, and, uh, and Belfasar. With the names that tradition has given to them. I mean, you can actually go today to their supposed skulls uh, uh, there in Germany, in, in Cologne, in a place called Cologne. So they're, they're there. So tradition. We're not interested in tradition, are we? So they ask Herod, these wise men, they ask Herod, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? These astrologers from, per- from Persia, from Babylon, are on an important mission, aren't they? You know, They have probably, and again, I'm just filling in gaps here. They were probably alerted to the prophetic significance of the times in which they lived by the prophecies of Daniel, no doubt, and the Old Testament prophets. Um, Jewish legend, you want some more tradition? Tells us that uh, um, that Daniel himself, we know, was in Persia, and, and it was, uh, in a sense, an official within the courts of of the house of Persia. The tradition says that he founded the Magi group. That it propo- that it is proposed that these guys, these wise men, were a part of, and, and that Daniel himself instructed them to watch for the Messiah throughout the generations to come. I don't know. It's all tradition. It's all tradition. Whether it is legend or not, their journey shows us something. I think this is the essence of this story that Matthew brings us. Their journey shows us that the whole world, not just just Israel, were looking for the Messiah. Do you see that? See, it's noteworthy that Matthew does not tell us about the shepherds coming to visit Jesus in the manger. They're in Luke's gospel. No, his focus is on, Matthew's focus is on foreigners coming from the east to worship the king in Jerusalem. In fact, one of the repeated prophecies that we see throughout the Old Testament scriptures is that he would, that that all the nations would ultimately come to him as king. Isn't that right? Over and over and over again, that is prophesied. You know, Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 3 says, nations will come to your light. And kings to the brightness of your rising, you know. So Matthew is attesting to the fact that his king um, is a king of all the nations, is a king of all humanity. And so the wise men, they come first to Jerusalem. And here's the thing, they come to Jerusalem, reading between the lines, it, it assumes that they think that the leaders of the Jewish people would both be aware that the Messiah is being born. Not only aware, but it seems that they would assume that they would be excited about the birth of the Messiah, don't you think? But the wise men are about to find out that that is not the case at all. And can you imagine what their arrival would have done to this insecure little Man, Herod, who built big things. These guys are asking the question, where is the king of the Jews? Herod, no doubt in his mind, is going, what do you mean the king of the Jews? Where is the king of the Jews born? I thought I was the king of the Jews. In fact, that was a title that Rome had given to him when he was placed there. They said, for we have seen a star in the east and we have come to worship him. See, he only wants himself to be worshipped. That's why he's a little man building big edifices to his own name. And he's an important character at this time. 
Now, there's an awful lot that has been written about this star, right? That has, I'll come back to Herod. There's an awful lot that has been written about this star of Bethlehem. You know, the people say that there were a conjunction of planets at the time, you know, and they come up with all these different speculations about what actually took place to speak to the hearts and the minds of these wise men, these astronomers, to come. What was it that constituted the star of Bethlehem? I mean, you can go to planetariums today. You know, you can go there and they can adjust the lights and in the ceiling. And have you been to any of these? You know, and, and, and they can take you back in time in history, all the way back to the, the time when Christ was born and look at the night sky and see what was happening in the stars above Jerusalem. But just exactly what took place, just exactly what constituted this special sign in the sky, well, again, it's just a matter of speculation. I don't think we're ever called to be speculators, are we? We just don't. We just don't know. What we know is that God moved the celestials to make His Son known. God moved the celestials so that His Son would be worshipped. That's that's what we know, right? You know, think about it. How did the star? Get, to the, get the Magi to travel east to Jerusalem. Now, if you read it carefully, it doesn't say that it led them there. It simply says in verse that they saw the star in the east. And so they came to Jerusalem. And how did the star go before them between? Because it does go before them. When they get to Herod, when they, uh, how does it travel that nine or ten kilometres that is the distance between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Verse 9 says it did. It led them there. You know? And how did that star, I'm just throwing these at you, and how did that star stand over the place where the child was? The answer is we don't know, right? The answer is we don't know. I mean, there are numerous efforts out there to try and explain, you know, the ter- in, in, again, in terms of conjunction of the planets and, 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 and so on, and all these things, and, and comets and, 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 and whatever. We don't know. But here's the thing. I'm only pausing here because I don't think we need to be preoccupied with these things. Do you? I, I don't think we do. People become so... Invested in these things. They become so preoccupied with such things. You know, how did the star work? How, did, how was the Red Sea split? How did the manna fall? How did Jonah survive inside the fish? You know? And they become so preoccupied with the how, but they lose the what God was placing right in front of them. I mean, here in the Christmas record, there is this plain statement that a star is doing something that it cannot do on its own. It is guiding Magi to come to the Son of God in order to worship Him. And there's only one, only one that can be behind that. And of course, that is God Himself. Isn't that right? Isn't that right? God is guiding. This is the whole essence of it. This is why I am taking the time here. And I'll say it again. God is guiding foreigners, non-Jewish people. To the Christ. He's guiding Gentiles to the Christ to worship him. And he's doing it 
by making a celestial being move. That's all. Can you accept that? Can your God do that? Of course he can. Of course he can. We have seen, it says in that second verse, his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, notice what it says, he was troubled. And notice, all of Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where Christ should be born. So he's got his own people in, on, the, on the task now. And they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it has been written by the prophet, now he's referring to the prophet Micah, they are, thou Bethlehem in the land of Judea, are not the least, you are not the least among the princes of Judea, for out of you shall come a ruler that shall shepherd my people Israel. So clearly Bethlehem is pinpointed as the birthplace. So it says, when Herod had privately called the wise men, so he's gone and got his scribes, the Hebrew scribes, he's found out the prophecy, now he's gone back to the wise men, and he's inquired of them diligently, he says, in other words, he's insisting, quite frankly, when they first saw the star, how long has it been? He's trying to work something out, you know. So they told him when they first saw the star, and they begin on their journey. Do you know what really troubles me with this, this thing here that we've just read? What really troubles me is that the chief priests and the scribes of the people the ones that Herod went to, who knew that they would know what the truth of the Messiah was about, he goes straight to them. They go straight to the scripture. They go straight to the promised prophecy there in Micah. They have the answer. They know that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem in Judah. They have perfect knowledge of the scripture concerning their Messiah. Doesn't this bother you? But not one of them, not one of them went with the wise men to worship the Christ child born to be their king. Not one of them. They're able to quote the scripture. They're able to quote it well, straight to Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. But less, but here, think about it, they quote the scripture, but less than 10 kilometers away from where they were standing was their king. And not one of them, not one of these religious men made their way. It's a lesson for all of us Christians, isn't it? It really is. You see, you and I, we can have all the knowledge that the Bible has to offer us. But if like the religious leaders of the time, did you notice that it said all Jerusalem was troubled at this? See, we often have this misconception that everyone was waiting for him, don't we? They were looking to the coming of their Messiah. I don't really know what that means. Some people say that, you know, uh, because it says that Herod was troubled at this news, therefore Jerusalem was troubled with him. And you can have quaint little sayings that, you know, when Herod is in trouble, troubled, everybody's troubled, right? You know, because he's upset, so everybody's upset. No, I think there's more to it than that. I really do. Jerusalem was troubled with this news 
this word that was spreading out that the Messiah is about to be born. Don't you find that arresting? Don't you find that disturbing? You know, there is a lesson for us. Let me say it again. We can have all the Bible knowledge that the Bible has to offer us, but if it doesn't move us to seek Christ, if it doesn't move us to seek the reality of Christ, and not just to listen to everybody else, and not just to fall into some, 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 some community of believers who believe this, that, and the other, I mean, that's fine, but for yourself to seek Christ. Think about it. He's just there. He's just there. I can walk there in a few hours and none of them move. What is a Christian? Is a Christian just someone who believes or is a Christian someone who just knows? Well, yes, it is. But beyond that, a Christian is someone who what? Who follows, don't they? Because that's what a Christian is, a Christ follower. Someone said, I read this once, that Christians don't just have knowledge, but they have a guiding light. I thought, how, how does that aptly fit this account, you know, of the wise men? The knowledge of God's promise is given a guiding light to lead them to the Messiah. You know, that's who we are. You know, is there any wise amongst us? Certainly there is. Wise men. In the word of God, searching out the scriptures daily to see whether these things are so. Holding fast to that which is true and allowing it to move us. See, the Holy Spirit is in us to change us, to transform us, isn't it? Into the image of Christ. But he needs the word. He needs the word in your heart. He doesn't work, he doesn't work in a vacuum. He doesn't work in a void. He works in a heart that's full of the word of God. And he changes us. He moves us in a, in a direction, you know. So important. The wise men followed the star. And verse 10 says they rejoiced. They didn't just rejoiced. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, I want to know what that looks like. Don't you? I want to know what that looks like in my own life. Rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. Yet at the same time, all of Jerusalem, including the religious leaders again were troubled they should have been on their way they should have been moved by this truth see Jesus came at a time this is why I looked at Herod this is why this morning because Jesus came at a time when the king that sat on the throne so to speak of that land had rejected him and hated him he came at a time when the religious were indifferent to his presence that's the best way to sum it up they're indifferent to his presence. My question, of course, this morning, as we prepare ourselves to celebrate Christmas, is it any different now? You know, so many rituals, so many ceremonies. Look at this. We've got lights and we got... You know, we had this whole theme, if you weren't here last week, this was our theme, because at Christmas party we were inviting people into our home, you know, and so we had the outside tree and we've got the forest there. You know, so you're outside. Many people, many of you may be putting lights on your homes, on the trees at the front of your homes. I don't know if you're free to do that or not, you know. And uh, so that was the image, you know, decorating outside. You 
walking through to the front door and we invite you into our home. Some of us will put presents under a tree, some of us will have a tree, some of us won't. It's all fine, you know. So we've got all of that going on in and around us. So many rituals, so many ceremonies. I, I don't judge anybody's heart, but here's the thing. I fear that there are many is that this is all we have. You know. I fear that those who only have served Christ, uh, what do the scriptures say, with their lips, but their hearts, their hearts are far from him. You know, for many no interest in his coming again that's why I paused at the start Steve almost had us there you know he almost had us there he's coming again you know? the apostle Paul believed no when he said those of us that are alive and remain referring to himself looking forward to the glorious appearing of his God and saviour Jesus Christ was in his heart that the king is coming and I think from the moment the disciples said in John chapter 14, I go to prepare, when Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. From the moment he said that, I believe they were looking for him to come again. And that's how we should be living. That's how the Jewish people should have been living. And when someone comes along with a prophecy that says, hey, he's born in Jerusalem, we should go running, right? They should have gone running. There were few devout there were so few devout, it seems, that worshipped their God. They were faithful to commitment, to hold on and to be moved by the promise. Again, there's Anna and there's Simeon. We know their stories there at the birth. Uh, but it seems there was just this whole lot of indifference. Let us not be indifferent, people. Let, let, let us not be indifferent. Our king is coming, Right? So he sent them to Bethlehem, it says, and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. Herod had a very perverted sense of worship. Because we know what he was trying to do. He was trying to locate where this supposed king would be. You're trying to locate how long this king has been there, you know. And he wasn't interested in worshipping Jesus. We know the story. But it says, when they had heard the king, that is King Herod, they departed and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them, went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. See, this is, where, this is where it's impossible to tie this star down. Forgive me, I want to come back to this star because... Um, this, you can't just tie it down as a natural phenomenon, you know. Because they saw the star in the east, right? And they're from, it led them from the east. It led them west. But now it's leading them back east because Bethlehem is actually southeast of Jerusalem. So this star is doing this. It's going like this, right? You know? And notice it stood... Over where the young child was. Notice it didn't stand over the manger. It didn't stand over where the baby was. It stood over where the young child was. Here's, here's where our Christmas cards confuse us. You know, you know, 
or our Christmas pageants or whatever you call them, you know. Because it makes it such a glorious climax, doesn't it, to the whole story. From the, the Christmas pageantry to have, the whole, to have everybody gathered around and have the wise men show up on that, on that morning and bow down before him and lay their gifts before him, you know. Shepherds peering from outside, looking in with their wide eyes and the, and the fluffy little sheep sitting around and all this sort of stuff. It's just so typical of our Christmas cards and, and Christmas pageantry that we try, to, we try to push forward every year. But these wise men, these wise men, they were latecomers. You know that, don't you? They were latecomers. By the time they had arrived, both Joseph and Mary had moved out of the place where Jesus was born. No doubt he was just there for the census, right? He was no longer lying in a manger, but now the young child is in a house in Bethlehem. And this is probably two years later. Because when Herod strikes, he kills all of the young boys two years and under. You know, we know the story. But when the wise men finally arrive, they found the young child. By this time, no doubt, who's got a two-year-old? Come on, there's got to be some around here, yeah. What, this child, no doubt, is walking around. Young Jesus is no longer walking around and probably talking, probably quoting chapters of the Torah by now, no doubt. After all, he wrote it, you know. And when they were come, notice, into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts gold. Gold is befitting a king, isn't it? Frankincense and myrrh. But the idea that there are three wise men comes from the fact that there were three gifts. We don't know that there were just three wise men. Could have been a whole... They gave these gifts, gold representing royalty, frankincense certainly representing his priesthood, and myrrh, well, myrrh was something that was used at burial, certainly representing his death. Um, significant, isn't it? They would give a young child, a newborn child, myrrh. So it says, now being warned of God in a dream, verse 12, that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. And that's all we know of the wise men. We've added a lot to it, haven't we? They didn't go back to Jerusalem because God had warned them. Now look, I think it's important for us to see that when Jesus was born, we have wise men coming to worship him in a nation that is ruled by a wicked man whose immediate response was to destroy him. We know that Herod was not wanting to worship Jesus, but the opposite. He was immediately threatened by and refused the thought of being ruled by this Christ. Think about that. In fact, it's generally agreed that he was an Edomian, and that is, he was a descendant of Esau. And Esau was the father of the Edomite people, you remember from Genesis the story of Jacob and Esau and the struggle that those two had, the struggle that began in the mother's womb. That struggle became a symbol 
throughout the word of God, throughout the history of God's people, becomes a symbol of the struggle that exists between the spiritual and the carnal. It's a symbol of the struggle that exists between the worldly and the godly. And here we are at the very beginning. We have this man that mirrors the responding hatred that the godless world has towards Jesus Christ. That's what he mirrors. Think about it. Judaism would reject him, wouldn't it? Judaism would reject him. They will resist and they will deny his reign. They will say, we will not have this man to rule over us. And throughout history, the truth of his birth, life, death and resurrection and the implications that they bring to humanity. Throughout history, humanity has struggled against that, hasn't it? It has. To this very moment, from the moment that Jesus entered to this world, to the very moment, to this moment, both, because the wise men are there, thankfully, aren't they? Both worship and hatred have existed towards the Son of God. Now, does this sound like a nice Christmas message for you? No. Be honest, but. Be honest with me. Put all the tinsel, put all the lights, put all the gift giving, all the fuzzy Christmas good feelings. You know, what's that, what's that Christmas song, you know, um, talking about the good feeling and the good vibe, that we could have it all year long or something. Eh, forget about it. Put all of that aside and answer the question. Because I think this is what should be on our heart at this time of the year. Yes, our Messiah has come. Yes, the King came. Put all of that aside. What do the people out there really, really think about Jesus? What, what do the mums what do the dads, what do the children, what do the young adults, what do the aged people, what do our political leaders, what is their response to the Christ child who has come to rule the hearts of mankind? Are they, like so many, saying we will not have this man to rule over us? The answer is before us every day, isn't it? As we go out and we be Christian, as we are moved by the word of God in our heart, as we speak the truth that has been born by the spirit of God in our heart, transforming us into Christ's likeness, when we become like Jesus out in this world, what is their response, you know? And the sad reality is Esau's descendants are still there, aren't they? They're everywhere. They're still rejecting they're still hating. They've got their Christmas trees up. They've got their lights shining. But they have banished him from their hearts and their homes. But thank God. But thank God so too are those that bring their gifts of honour and reverence and worship to lay at his feet. You know? Isn't that glorious? Because that's who you are, Christian. That's what this is really all about. And, and something else. We need to realise, because that sounded pretty dire, didn't it, the way I was describing it, you know. 
But at the same time, we need to realise that in spite of all the struggle that's going on out there, in spite of all the constant blasphemy of who Christ is, the truth is that God is in control. The truth is that God is fulfilling his word. That's the truth. Just as he was in control at his first arrival, at that first Christmas, God was in control. God was fulfilling his word. Do you remember what Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 1 says? Anybody? It says, The king's heart is in the hand of Jehovah as the watercourse turns in whichever way it goes. God is ruling, God is maneuvering. You know, our God is still in control and our God still honours his word. You read Luke's account of the Christmas story. Remember, all of the Roman world was called to a census. All of the Roman world was called to be taxed and everybody had to go back to their hometown in order to be counted. Think about that. Here was little Caesar Augustus. He was the Caesar on the throne at the time. He had decreed that this has to happen, that all of his empire would be numbered. He decreed it. Caesar Augustus. He even chose his own name. Augustus, it means of the gods. Here I am, of the gods, dictating, moving this entire world around at my command. No. You know what God was doing? God was moving the entire Roman world around the womb of maybe a 14, 15-year-old girl named Mary. God wanted to get that girl, where? To Bethlehem. Why? Because he said 400 years before, that's where the Christ would be born, in Bethlehem. So who's in control? Who's moving the entire civilised world to make sure? I love that statement, don't you? God moved the entire world around the womb of a 14-year-old girl. That is, that's my God, you know. Again, in here in Matthew, what's God doing? He's influencing the celestials to not only make, to make sure that there is someone there to worship his son. Don't you just love the fact that God will do what God has to do? God will go to whatever lengths he needs to go to fulfill his will in your life. Don't you realise that? Instruct a king's heart, shift a civilization, move the heavens, it doesn't matter. It will get done. God will get it done. You see, you can take that word. This is what Christmas says to us. You can take that word that God has spoken with absolute confidence and you can apply it to your life. You can apply it to your family. And you can know today that he still does what he needs to do to make sure that his word will be fulfilled in your life. God still honours his word. That's what Christmas tells me. So wise men came to worship. Contrasted with... Wicked men, determined to reject. Who are we? Who are we? 
excuse me, ladies, wise people came to worship. We're the wise, aren't we? That's not arrogant. That's not arrogant. We may be smart. Yeah, I, I, I take that. I think, the, I think the gospel message is the greatest deal that mankind has ever been offered. Trust in my son, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and I will promise you eternal life. All you have to do is believe on him whom the Father has sent. That's the deal, right? And you will know forgiveness. You will have the hope of eternity. You have the promise that Christ will come again and receive you unto himself. You have the promise that God will give to you a new glorified body. You have the promise that you will reign with him. The Bible says, think about it. Don't try to understand that. But think about it. That you are heirs with him. That's the deal. That's why I say I think we're smart. Because a fool rejects that. As it says, the fool has said there in their heart that there is no God. Right? That's a fool. So let's be wise this year, people. Will you be wise when you gather with your family? How many sleeps now? (laughs) Ten, is it? Eight? Who's counting? Is anybody counting? You come to worship him. Will you lay your gifts down before him? Give him your reverence, honour. We share amongst your family as you celebrate his birth that this is the great king. Forget about the kings of this world that reject him. This is the great king. The king of kings and lord of lords. Okay. Let's, um, let's pray. Father in heaven, we, Lord, just thank you for this glorious truth, this wonderful promise. And I do thank you, Father, that you had your remnant there then, not only waiting but expecting, not only expecting but being moved by the promise. Lord, I just pray that likewise we would be, yes, waiting, expecting, moved by the promise that as you came once, you'll come again. And until that day, Lord, uh, we will go and we will share this wonderful truth to a world that, uh, that struggles with the implications of, of a God who loves them. Lord, I pray that you would give us words this week, words of wisdom this week, this week and in the coming weeks to share as Christmas is on people's hearts and minds. May worship be on our hearts and minds, Lord. Thank you for this time together today. And even now as we gather around the communion table, remind us, Lord, of the blessedness of the wonder of this gift. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as the elements come around, certainly 
We need to prepare our hearts, don't we? Isn't it amazing we are preparing our homes right now? Don't you think that? It's amazing. We're cleaning our homes, we're putting up our shiny things, we're putting up the lights and, and getting dusting off the tree and all that sort of stuff, you know. We're preparing our homes and we're going to great lengths to do it, you know. This morning, I ask you to prepare your hearts. Uh, and I know within this room, in fact, I know within every single one of us, hearts need to be prepared. I know that because I know none of you, like myself, are perfect. I know that this week we have lived our lives maybe the best as Christians. But I know that according to the scripture, that we have all sinned, we've all fallen short of the mark, you know. And that's what sin means, you know that. Simply just not to be perfect, to miss the holy, righteous standards of God. That's why the blood of Christ is so important. That's why the scriptures tell us that the blood of Jesus Christ not only has washed us, but continually washes us. That's why we're told if we can come to him, confess our sins, he will forgive us. He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're told those things, right? And so right now, the communion table, when we gather together, we are reminded that Jesus has done this for us. He's made a way for us back into the presence of the Holy One and all the promises that come with that. So will you prepare your hearts? Will you be wise? Will you be still right now? And I just ask you, just be silent as these emblems come your way. And as the prophet asked, is there any wickedness within me? Lord, ask the Lord to expose it and to forgive you right now so that we can partake of the communion table as a family, share in the body and the blood, the symbols of his death and life for us. So let's bow our heads. Let's be still. I would pray that God would make us passionate about this salvation. Passionate. That means to be excited. That means to be alive to it. That means again to be moved by it. Father in heaven, thank you for this wonderful gift. Thank you for this glorious truth. Thank you for this eternal hope. Thank you, Lord, for this precious peace. 
this ever-present mercy and this wonderful joy that fills our hearts. Because you've forgiven us. And right now, Lord, we simply want to remember the price that was paid. Thank you, Lord, for the bread of life. That we may and have and do eat of it, Lord. That his life would be lived in us and through us, not only now but through all eternity. That we would never hunger again. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for us. We thank you, Lord, for the blood that continually washes us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for us. Thank you for giving us life eternal. So take the emblems at your own, at your own, at your own. Thank you, Father.
I surrender, I surrender, oh.